You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing in higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. My name is Troy Singer. And my name is Bart Kaler. And today we cover the topic of the crucial role that universities can have in supporting and developing media literacy. And we do this with two wonderful individuals. Uh, we have another Bart today, which makes things a little <laughs> confusing. Their names are Bart Volholz and Chris Davey. And Bart, as you know, this is something that we wanted to bring to the forefront, this topic, especially after getting a sneak preview of the paper that Bart and Chris shared with us. Yeah, it's, it's one of those topics that I think uh, can be polarizing because I think, it, you know, talking about media literacy, everybody has their opinion. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, polarization going on. I so appreciated, Troy, in the beginning when you talked about, you know, <laughs> this is not going to be a po politics. This isn't going to be about... I, I valued that because at the end of the day, we do have an issue with media literacy. We do have an issue with just uh, especially the danger with, we, we touch on it with AI. Many of you might've seen my deep fake uh, video that I did online a couple uh, months back. And, and I think that there's just, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. So I'm really grateful that, that we had this conversation with Chris and Bart. Um, I have to admit, this is the first time I've interviewed another Bart, <laughs> probably the first time I've had a conversation with another Bart. It's not a popular name, but anyway, uh, it was a great conversation. I'm so excited to share this with everyone. Yes. Here's our conversation with Chris and Bart. Now, Chris and Bart V, to help us and our audience get to know you a little bit better, would love to ask you both if you could share something that you've recently learned that you would deem fun or interesting. And Bart V, I'm going to ask you to kick us off. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a really random thing. Um, but yesterday I heard about a little animal called a monotreme, I think it's called in English. And it's actually a mammal that lays eggs. And um, as far as I can remember from my school days, I, I never heard about a mammal that laid eggs. But apparently here is a mammal that does lay eggs. I'm 51 now. I think I learned all about ma mammals when I was 10, 11, 12. <laughs> so I spent about uh, the better part of 37 years uh, wrongly educated. So there we go. That's great. I love that. But now we are educated. So thank you, Bart. <laughs> all right. You're good. Chris. When I was in elementary school and they taught us about mammals, Bart, they, they always pointed to the platypus as the example of the mammal that could lay eggs. But uh, uh, that's, that's, that's not the, the new thing I learned. I, I would say this is, really, this is very obscure, but it, it's what leaps to mind when you ask the question. I like uh, horse racing. And I follow the horse races. There's a horse race at Gulfstream Park in Miami this weekend called the Pegasus Classic. And uh, I was looking at this race that's being run at a mile and a 16th on turf and comparing a horse to the mile and a 16th 
turf course at the fairgrounds in Louisiana. And what I learned is that the mile and a 16th turf course at Gulfstream Park in Miami favors early runners. And the mile and a 16th course at the fairgrounds favors closing horses. So if you're ever at one of those racetracks, that's the angle you're going to look, I'm going to want to look for on the, uh, on the turf course. And I'm going to recite that and people are going to be scared of me because they know I am informed. So thank you, Chris. Everyone, we are talking today with Chris Davey from 30PR and with Bart Volholtz. He is the head of investor relations services at PressPage. And most importantly, we are going to have a conversation with them about navigating the truth the crucial role of universities in the digital age. And if both of you could just take 30 seconds to a minute each, tell us a little bit about you and how you work together and give us a perspective of how you come to this conversation. And I will ask Chris to start out first. Sure. Thanks, Troy. I'm, I'm happy doing hey, uh, Thanks for having us on, on the program. I was the vice president of communications at the Ohio State University for seven years before I founded 30PR. And uh, started my career in journalism. I'm wearing my lantern uh, shirt today from the uh, the lantern student newspaper at the Ohio State University, where I was the uh, the the uh, editor, and then I was a political reporter for some newspapers in the United States. And so, journalism has been an institution that's always been near and dear to my heart. And my role at Ohio State was to kind of be the gateway for journalists to the university, serving as the spokesman and as the chief uh, communications officer for for Ohio State. Um, That's where I got to know Bard, where we worked together with his firm uh, on some uh, uh, a program that we created at Ohio State called Ohio State News, where we were taking some of the principles of journalism and applying them to the communications framework at the university. And that's one of the things uh, that we want to talk to you about today, but we can get into that a little bit uh, down the road. My name is uh, Bart Verhulst. Uh, I am uh, from Amsterdam in Holland, and uh, I've studied uh, communication both undergraduate and graduate level, um, and uh, began my career also in public relations, corporate communications, uh, also on the investor side. And then I made a, a, a switch, a mid-career switch, and became a university professor at the University of Utrecht of Applied Sciences. Uh, and also became the head of department there, um, and that was actually the 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 place where uh, PressPage was actually founded, and we were a university spinoff essentially. Uh, and today, uh, my company, uh, besides serving uh, the corporate communications team of, of of global companies, we have a lot of university and higher ed institutions that are our clients and use our platform to spread their news. And that's also how I met Chris. Well, thank you. And I admit that this conversation is very much needed and it is uh, meant to be practical. And uh, with things that are currently going on in the U.S., it is not meant to be political at all. What we are attempting to do is um, inform you and also let you know what some of the thinkers are thinking in regard to our new digital age. Uh, But with that, I'm going to get right into the conversation and would like to ask the both of you if 
You could discuss how programs like the University of Pennsylvania's digital media program influence societal change. Well, um, you know, Bart and I wrote a, a, a piece recently that's um, going to be published in the coming weeks where we looked at how uh, the whole information economy, the entire information environment, the way that society, that individuals and society get information and process news and understand what's true and what isn't true in the world uh, has completely transformed, you know, during our lifetimes, really just in the last I don't know, 15, 20 years, you could say, you know, when I started taking uh, journalism classes at Ohio State in the early 1990s, I was the last class that took took the the news writing course on a typewriter. Uh, The very next quarter, they got they got, um, you know, computers. And when I was the editor at Ohio State, we were still cutting the galleys and pasting them up for the, for the daily newspaper. And we published a 30,000 circulation uh, daily newspaper five days a week at Ohio state. That was a moneymaker, you know, uh, for the university. Uh, And that's the way that people were getting their news on campus about what was going on at Ohio state. That's how everybody got, got their news. And so there was this unified place where people went, you went to your newspaper, you went to the evening news, and there was a source that we all could kind of agree we disagreed on a lot of things, but we had a common source for determining at least what was true or false in the world for us to make decisions in our democracy. Obviously, with the rise of the internet, the really the collapse of the business model for journalism in this country, uh, we've witnessed uh, a decline in in the economic fortunes of journalistic enterprises, but. More importantly, what we've seen coinciding with that is, I think it's safe to say, a a, a total collapse in the systems that we in society use for deciding what's true and what's not true. And the consequences uh, are uh, evident to us. So programs like the Annenberg program, we write about them in the the article, um, and we look at, at a number of other programs around the country where there's intensive study going on. Uh, scientific research into this phenomenon, into uh, mass communication, um, into all of the various aspects of how uh, the communications environment has transformed and the effects that it's having on society and what can be done about it. So we make the case in our piece that these types of programs need to be supported um, if we're going to find our way as a society into whatever this next chapter is, is that hopefully is going to be uh, a place where we stabilize um, the, uh, the environment and uh, become, uh, find ourselves in a position where we can once again have some, something that at least looks like a, a common truth for us to make collective decisions on. I think that's a good point, Chris, and I'd love to hear Bart's take on that as well. But I, I just have to comment on the fact that when you when you set that up with what you were doing at Ohio State as a student, I mean, it sounds like it was eons ago. <laughs> I mean, if you think <laughs> about the fact that, you know, I remember, I mean, you and I are pretty close to the same age. I mean, I was I, when I started my career, they they just stuck the max on the on the agency desks of of designers and ad agency firms. And, and it was a new world. 
And uh, it's amazing just to think about, you know, 35, 40 years later, what that looks like. But, you know, Bart, what, what's your take on all that as far as, you know, where all that this, this new information warfare and all the challenges around that are going? Yeah, so um, it's it's an interesting question, and I always like to. So I'm an amateur historian, so I always like to to look at history as well. And and if we if we go back in time uh, and and we look at everything that's happened, you know, all the way from, let's say, you know, the first town criers and the bulletins and the word of mouth that was spread, um, in, you know, in the old European cities about you know lands being conquered and kings being born and all of that. All the way to the 1600s, when when you know the printing press that was invented around the 1450s uh, was actually in in bigger circulation, you see that that media has also gone through an incredible modernization. So it's not just it's not just the way we consume it. I think it, it, it all starts with uh, the medium and the carriers that are that are changing. And what we have seen is that that with the advent of technology, uh, I think our generation is the one that probably has seen the biggest change, right? We've gone from a 24-hour news cycle. So basically, you know, you wait till the next morning, 8 o'clock before you get the newspaper again on your mat, to a 24-hour, you know, full-blown, instant news economy. Um that has done a lot for the media in the sense that, you know, it, it, some, some media outlets haven't been able to adapt. I think in the U.S. alone between 2005 and 2017, I think about more than 2,200 newspapers went belly up uh, because they haven't been able to cope with that, that new business model. Uh, others have. I know that some large newspapers, they have basically sold their editorial soul, uh, you know, they they kicked out all of the journalists, hired them back in as freelancers, and now they employ more uh, web designers uh, and content people um, that, than they do journalists. And it's all about, you know, selling ads and, you know, which which stories get, get the most clicks. Uh, you know, that's where journalists get paid off. So... Um, I think I think we also need to look at the media as a as a business, not just as the fourth estate that you know controls government and it's you know about the people and all of that. I also think you should look at it in the light of being being a an industry uh, with its own folds, just like the banking industry has its folds and the food industry has its folds. And there, to go back to that question that you asked, Troy, we need to understand that. And we need also need to learn that just like people are being educated in what to eat, just like people are being, you know, educated in other parts. We also need to be educated in the media. You speak of the necessity of multidisciplinary programs in digital communication like the one at the USC Annenberg School. So how do you think such programs can shape the future of digital communication and the media effects research? So first of all, I think it's all about, you know, everything has to do with demand, in my opinion. Things are made because of demand. At the end of the day, we are in a, mostly in a capitalistic society. And, and I think, you know, demand, demand is crucial. And, and demand can be better measured now in the digital age than it could be in the time of, you know, of, of, of a piece of paper. Because you didn't know which articles were being read and which ones weren't because you bought a whole newspaper, period. So I think, uh, you know, educating the people on on what is news and what is, uh, you know, what it is that you can consume will, at the end of the day, also 
in my opinion, uh, hopefully shape on what's being produced and how that industry is going to evolve as well. That in short is, is a little bit my, my personal take on that. Okay. And I, I think, I mean, I, I think you're right. I was, I was reflecting while you were talking there about the idea that it seems like anytime I watch any, uh, you know, any news on, you know, television, or, or even if you listen to the radio, the amount of use of breaking news now, it's, it seems like every other, you know, coming back from commercial break is breaking news. Whereas, you know, I remember again, you know, we, we all are extras, I think on this. I remember growing up with the idea that, you know, when Walter Cronkite came on with breaking news, it was breaking news. It was like something that nobody knew about yet. And, and I, I, I think that's interesting in the way that you're talking about that. But I also think it's interesting, like you're talking about, just kind of like this, this literacy of, of understanding journalism, understanding the news that we have. Uh, help me kind of understand a little bit, you know, especially as you guys are thinking about it. And I know in your article that, that's going to be published, you kind of gave us a little sneak peek at it. I mean, one of the biggest challenges we have today in today's world, and I, I really, again, I appreciate Troy kind of talking it up and setting this up as this isn't a political discussion, but everybody has their camps and they can all go into their own little camp and get the news that they want that's custom made for their worldview and then walk out with what they believe is, you know, their authority. How are you guys kind of unpacking that a little bit and, and how are these programs that we've discussed helping universities kind of prepare students, not only students in the program, but also help navigate the world. I mean, there's a lot of challenges here. Well, I, I guess I would um, respond to that by saying that since Bart is right, the demand is clearly what drives uh, so much of the media ecosystem. It is it is the essential currency of the uh, media ecosystem. Um, I think we can do a lot of work on how demand operates and and i guess what i mean by that is demand is people the demand is is individual people in their minds and what they choose to connect with and those are decisions that citizens make about what they're going to consume are you going to spend your evening uh, mindlessly scrolling through reels or tiktok uh looking at goodness knows what or are you going to read the new york times um are you going to pick up Twitter and uh, only follow those Twitter accounts that make you comfortable in your bubble, your ideological bubble, whatever it is? Or are you going to challenge yourself by following accounts that don't necessarily align with your uh, political view or worldview that you've, that you've arrived at? And those decisions... Uh, are not made in a vacuum. They're the culmination of 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 um, that individual person's environment, their education, and their upbringing. So, one of the things that we advocate for in the piece is uh, media literacy. That's that's the buzzword. That's the term. I actually wish there were a better term for it, and I I, I feel like something's going to emerge to replace it. You know how language evolves, and we call this thing this now. Um, I. I I know there's a better term out there, but that's the term that we're using that's used widely to describe what we're trying to talk about, which is systematically educating the next generation on um, how to make good choices when they are the demand 
uh, in the marketplace for ideas and information. We can't, I mean, if you look at, if you look at uh, this environment that we're in now and all the choices that we have and how people are consuming media and what it's doing to our society, what it's doing to individual people, uh, it's very clear that we can't just expect for uh, a kid to come up in this world and be just left to their own devices to end up being a um, well-educated, well-informed person who's going to make sound decisions about the uh, the media that they consume. We, in high school, teach kids about how to balance a checkbook and make sound finance. We systematically teach them about finances uh, or other aspects of, of, of life. We used to teach kids about how to be a good uh, citizen in our democratic republic. Unfortunately, th that actually civic education has dropped off a little bit. But to me, it's very clear that for lack of a better term, media literacy is just critical. And if you look around um, among public policymakers and opinion leaders, there's really very little discussion or movement to try to put something like that in place. And I, I think it's critical. If I can add to that a thing, you know, it's 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 in, in the 1600s, right, when when these very expensive printing presses were were, uh, you know, being introduced because at the time they were expensive. It's not that the average media consumer had a lot of money to pay for their prints or their newspaper they would get. So, you know, let's be very fair and honest about this, that at the time they were also being sponsored. So that meant you know, government, political parties, whatever it was, you know, at the time they were being, you know, it was propaganda as well in a certain way. Um, and it is just good to know, um, you know, what the source is and, you know, what the economic dynamics are of the things you consume. And um, there are, I think, throughout history, hundreds of examples that, you know, if you if you put them into a into a classroom and you, you make it very apparent, you know, I think even those, those stories from, from way back in the 1600s, if you compare them to now, they haven't changed much. And I think they could be real eye openers when it comes to media literacy of, of understanding how those dynamics still work today. Although digitally, they're still the same. Another component uh, beyond media literacy is what the actual platforms can do to regulate themselves and be responsible and promote uh, responsible use and also promote a culture of truth, if you will, right? So Twitter is an example. Twitter has had, of course, they've gotten beaten up since Elon Musk took them over. And there are things that under Musk leadership they have done that, in my opinion, were a step back. But there's a couple things Twitter has done uh, that 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 have been improvements. And so just two quick examples. There, It's so simple, but it, it Taken together, if all of the media platforms were to approach things in a way where they felt like they had to fulfill the, this responsibility, it could go a long way. So, like with Twitter, um, I just it just happened to me the other day where I was guilty of seeing the headline and going, "Oh yeah, I'm going to share this." You know, it was actually it was uh, an article disparaging Coach Jim Harbaugh for leaving to go to San Diego uh, and leaving a mess behind in Michigan. So me, I'm an Ohio State fan. If I see anything that disparaged, right? So I saw the headline. I was like, share, right? And then Twitter says, do you want to read the article first? Right? You know, they have that function built in. 
Is it right? And it's it's just a reminder. It's like, yeah, you should probably read something before you share it, you know. But the be- the better example on Twitter is their community notes, you know. And I routinely will encounter uh, things on Twitter where it'll say, you know, there will be a post that makes a claim. And then under it, it says, you know, community note. Uh, here's how the, this thing here is probably not true. Or here's here's a piece of context you need to know about this thing uh, to understand that it's it's either not entirely true or it's not what it purports to be. So those are just two examples of things that the platforms can do that would go a long way in addition to um, the, the the media literacy concept. I, I think that's a I think that's a really good point, and I am encouraged to see some of these technology advances that are kind of helping with the situation. Part of it is, and, and you know, we'll talk about AI in a moment, but a lot of it, the genie's out of the bottle, or, or whatever you want to, what analogy you want to say. Uh, there's a lot of challenges in our world right now with with media literacy. And so I guess I've got two questions. I mean, we can certainly talk a lot about, and I know in our pre-conversation, we talked about, you know, journalism education and and, and evolving. And, and Bart, you made some comments about just being able to, you know, better educate, you know, the students within our care at universities to be able to say, hey, here's uh, here's how you need to think about media. Here's how, and 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 really teach a lot more critical thinking skills and, you know, to, to improve all of this. But I guess I step back and I look at it and I say, okay, we've got an issue right now that's, that I feel is only going to get a little bit more exasperated with deep fakes and with AI and some other things. Uh, what, what are we to do, you know, kind of in the current place? And maybe you've kind of addressed some of that in the, in the article, but, you know, I, I think that we can talk about education. We can talk about other things, but I have a real concern that we, we're kind of at a little bit of a, there's a, there's a lot of kinder, a lot of dry kinder sitting around, and it's only going to take a, a spark or two to get us into a real pickle that we're going to have a hard time getting out of. Sometimes I, I, I admit I, I, I think the same. On the other hand, if, for example, if you're talking about technology and you look at the algorithms that um, all of a sudden will feed you everything that's down your alley because, you know, you've watched, I don't know, you've watched the... Uh, I don't know, let's just say a, a, a yellow piece of content and then you watch an orange piece of content. So the next thing they'll do, they'll feed you a red piece of content because it's in the middle, right? And just using colors as, a, as an analogy here. Um, but these these algorithms can also be programmed differently, right? I mean, they they can also be programmed. Hey, you know, if you, if you, if you read green, 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 hey, here's something brown, here's something black, here's something red, you know, just just mix up the colors a little bit. Uh, you know, that, that could also be done because that was one of the things that, you know, a lot of people say is that, you know, once you go into this rabbit hole of a certain theme or a certain way of thinking, uh, and it doesn't matter, it can be political, but it can also be different, then it's difficult to get out of there and get, you know, and get a balanced piece of opinion. So I think these algorithms can also be programmed. I mean, you know, I'm also a technologist. There's no way in hell they cannot be programmed differently either to bring a more balanced uh, flavor to the content that's feeded. Now, of course, well, uh, that's exactly right. And the dilemma there is that absolutely the te- the the technology is enabled. The algorithms could be re- could be programmed in a way that they uh, are much safer or uh, better for society, more conducive to us knowing what's true. But you mentioned capitalism earlier in demand, and the fact is all of these companies are uh, for-profit corporations, 
and they have uh, a uh, immense financial incentive to program the algorithms in the way that they have, you know? So I think it, it this is why, you know, you know, we started by talking about these programs in the United States, the Annenberg School and others that we identify in the article that are doing great work studying all of this stuff. It does start there, but right? So before we could before we could reprogram the algorithms in a way that we could confidently say is going to be more beneficial to society, we have to have a better understanding of how that all links up. And that's where the research comes in. Um, I Then the challenge is, I can't imagine a world where these for-profit corporations, Meta, uh, X, as we now are made to call it, <laughs> formerly Twitter, um, Google, uh, the others, I can't imagine a world where they are going to all of a sudden start changing their algorithms to uh, for for altruism and for the betterment of betterment of society. Uh, okay, one sec, Bart. Because uh, so, so therefore, so therefore, maybe I'm old school, but it seems like there's going to have to be a regulatory, some type of regulatory intervention. Okay, is that what you're going to say, Bart? And well, well, at the risk the of, government, of being a, at the yeah. risk of being a very progressive. Uh... Leftist European, which I don't consider well, you're myself. In a, you're that in a much. socialist country, aren't you? Aren't you uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw the last elections, but I don't think we can. Uh, oh wait, no, uh, Troy said, say that anymore. Troy said, we weren't, Troy said yeah. we weren't going to get political, though. Troy no, no, said no, we weren't, no. We weren't going to get no, political. No, but so <laughs> but but at the end of the day, I mean, I think the only ones that have the power to regulate this is, of course, and it's controversial, I know, in some in some corners, but is of course legislation and legislation is made by, by government right so yeah so, and if you look yeah. here in the european union i mean they are they are very fierce and serious about it and and you know uh yeah they are yeah uh, a little bit more well uh, let's not say a little bit let's just say as it is a lot more than in the u.s yeah i think those are really good points and, and i and i agree that i think that it's a difficult and challenging you know problem to solve. I don't think it's beyond what, what can be solved, but I, I do think it's going to be challenging. And I think one of the things that, that I wanted to point out, you know, I touched on AI a, a bit ago and I, I shared with the two of you after our pre-interview, just a, a deep fake video that I had created just to kind of prove a point to show how dangerous it is to, it is to just be able to make something, you know, appear real when it's not. And, uh, when I posted that I had, I had, um, you know, somebody, a friend of mine on LinkedIn kind of used the word, uh, we kind of live in a post-truth world. And I and I kind of thought about that. And I'm just curious to get your response, your both of your response on that too, because I think that, Chris, you had said a couple of times, it's like making sure that everybody understands what's true. But I think that a lot of people like today like to define their own truth. And all of a sudden it's like, well, where does that truth? And, you know, we talked about not getting political. I'm not going to get theological. But I just think that we've got to figure out how do we all agree on truth when in a post-truth world? I'm just curious what you guys are thinking. 
I personally think you'll never agree on what's true, and that has nothing to do with theology or politics. You know, it's just you know people 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 see things differently. It's also you know you hear that a lot at police uh, police testimonies as well. Three people saw what happened, and they all have a different story, right? So it's not so much about truth. I think it's about something that that we also discussed in our in our in our prep meeting, which has to do with uh, I think uh, Chris, you called it the uh, the the base course, no, the base curriculum. Is that correct? So, mm-hmm, yeah, the, the um, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. At, at every core, curri- core curriculum, yeah. core curriculum, right? At every yeah. at every university or institution of higher education, we teach people to think critically, right? And I think you touched on it a little bit before as well, Bart. And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, before legislation is here, uh, before corporations really think, "Oh my God, I'm making a lot of money, but I'm ruining the world," I don't think that's going to happen. You see. Uh, um, I think I think the quickest and best solution might be in teaching young people to be critical about media. And let's say this: media today is a, um, I would say, extended or expanded. I would like to call it a container uh, a word because it's not just you know the newspaper or the eight o'clock news. Media these days is a lot more because anybody that can build a small website can call himself a media outlet. So we we must be very careful about what we see and basically install that critical thinking. Uh, I think that's the, that's the quickest path to success. Yeah, a couple guys could start yeah, a podcast. I mean, who knows? Hey, here we are. Here we are. Maybe maybe this It'd is the butterfly right. in the middle of the Atlantic that will cause a wind to... Uh, yeah, so that takes us back to the uh, the media literacy. The, the the at least that's the term we you know we were using, and 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 that's certainly a critical component of it. I think it's like any complicated problem. There is going to be multi multiple layers to it, and multiple um, facets to the solution. And one of them certainly is media literacy. We already mentioned that uh, uh, intensive, well funded scientific media study at our universities. Both those things need to happen at our universities. Um, Another one that we, uh, a third piece that we talk about is to support the institution of traditional journalism by supporting uh, journalism education. I mean, I I, uh, am on the alumni board at Ohio State and and have the great pleasure of um, spending time with our journalism students today who are uh, coming up and with the faculty there at Ohio State that's uh, teaching the next generation of journalists. And the amazing thing is demand, you talked you talked about demand you know, earlier as it relates to uh, the demand for media content, demand uh, in the higher education um, market for a journalism education, uh, at least as measured at Ohio State, is as strong as it's ever been. These there's there's uh, these kids. They they I want to be a journalist. I want to I want to seek the truth. I want to I want to tell the truth. So I think that's another component of it is um, supporting journalism education. And, and and as long as I'm walking through them, you know that w- in the article we we write about four of them, and those are the the first three, and the fourth is a little counterintuitive. Uh, we make the case that universities need to. Think of their own communications operations as journalistic enterprises, to think of themselves as the publishers of news. And at the, the beginning of the podcast, that's when I said I first met Bart was, 
his company helped us create the program that's still at Ohio State. It's just called Ohio State News. And what we did was we consolidated all of the news um, that's produced all across that $8 billion enterprise at Ohio State from the medical center to the football program uh, to research news, which is, which is what we found in measuring demand for the, the news that's coming out of Ohio State. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about it. And Bart alluded to this is you can measure it now. It's not like in the old days with the newspaper, who knows which articles are being read. Uh, and we were very systematic about it, just like any news organization is today. Where are the clicks coming from? What do people, what do our audience want to see from the Ohio State University? And you know what? It wasn't football, if you can believe that. Now, there's a big demand for football news, all right? There's a big demand for football news, but that wasn't the number one category. It was research news. Research news crushed it. Uh, we had stories that would get hundreds of thousands of clicks about research emerging from Ohio State. So th that, that's why one of the things we advocate for is for universities to think of their communications programs as journalistic enterprises um, not only will it enable them to connect all of the research that's happening with their audiences, which serves the cause we're talking about, because if we're if the public is consuming scientific research from all of the great universities, the public is becoming more educated and is presumably going to make better decisions about how to consume media and be in a better position to make critical judgments about what's true and what isn't true. But here's the kicker. This is a uh, marketing podcast, right? The kicker is if when universities do this, when we did this at Ohio State, when other clients that we've worked with have done this, what they find is it also elevates and supports the brand of the university and it advances the bottom line of the university in ways that are pretty powerful and, and, and surprising. So uh, can I just allude to this, Chris, because it's uh, so so it, it was my good friend, uh, Tom, Tom Foremsky, that uh, he was an old he was an ex Wall Street Journal um, correspondent or journalist. And, and he came up with the term every company is a media company. Right. And, and he, he did he did quite a bit of research on this. The bottom line was that all of a sudden, you know, car brands like Nissan and American Express, well, not American Express, not a car brand, but American Express were were bringing out their own news. And the idea basically was trust my news, trust my trust my product, right? And and Chris, I think you allude a little bit to this as well, right? If 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 you have good news, reputable news, um, or content that you share, it doesn't always have to be news because we call it news because you know it's published, but it might not be news as we would typically call it, but let's just call it content. Very good. Um, the moment you publish that and and it's it's um, it's being consumed and it's being seen as reputable and it's being reused because that usually you know happens with with good content, good news, then obviously that has a huge effect on the brand that publishes it. And I, I completely agree with Chris that that you know that is from a marketing perspective that is that is a very strong method. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm going to tease that out for a second just to kind of put a bow on that because I think that. I'm sure we're having some people listen to this and they're like, okay, that's great, Chris. You're at Ohio State University or the Ohio State University, I should say. I'm sorry. And, uh, <laughs> and then, Here we but, go again. <laughs> but, and we've talked about, you know, how some of the great schools can do that. And I, I automatically, my mind goes to like a lot of the flagships and that's great. And that's perfect. But I've got a lot of people that are listening that are probably like, okay, great. I, I'm a small 
school. We've got under 2,500 students. How am I going to make a difference? Because, you know, we don't, I mean, yeah, we have a, we have a communications department. We don't necessarily have journalism degrees or whatever that might be. I'm just curious, you know, how can just any school make a difference in this? And I think Bart, you kind of touched a little bit on it. What I'm thinking, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Critical thinking is is one of the ways. I mean, you know, I, I went to a liberal arts school and that was kind of a big part of my education was learning how to learn, learning how to think, learning how to critical think. Why don't you guys kind of, what would you tell a, a smaller school how to how to approach this? So we work with a lot of large universities like the Ohio State University, but also University of Manchester in, in England, which is one of the, the largest in, in, in the UK. And sure, you know, they have their their people, their budgets, you know, they can they can kind of accommodate for that. But but I also work with uh, with quite a few colleges in the US and 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 I know of one that is in uh, in Texas. And um trust me, they don't I don't think they have the budgets that some of the other ones do, and they don't have the people on staff that that they do. But I think what they have done is they've instigated a sense of pride within the faculty and the students, and they have asked everybody to contribute with ideas and stories. Uh, and it takes a while. It takes a while for this to get going. But but after a while, uh, stories come in, uh, ideas come in that are just so good that they're easily transformed into something interesting. Uh, and the good thing about it is that back in the days when you had a good story, you had to type it out. These days you don't have to type it out. It can be an infographic. It can be a piece of video. It can be a piece of text. You know, it can be a lot of different things these days. So the format on which you publish, it can be a podcast. So the format on which you publish uh, can be very diverse, which means that a lot more people will feel feel at ease with it. Because we all know, you know, we all know uh, even today, you know, some people are just very good at writing and other people are not, but they have great ideas. Well, now they can express themselves in different ways digitally. So there is a lot to be done and there's a lot to be uh, to be created in this way. Well, you know, I... I... Early on in my career, I worked for a, a, a much smaller university, Ohio Dominican University here in Columbus, which is back when I was there, I, I think they had in the neighborhood of 2000 students. Uh, then they they did create a football program and 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 um, used that as a an enrollment strategy for a, a solid decade long after I left. And I want to say they're up into over 3000 now. Um, but I, I have sat in, in, in that uh, chair at a smaller school with more limited resources and smaller audiences. And I mean, I see that what we're talking about in, in a couple um, facets is like in terms of contributing to the broader, higher minded goals that we were talking about of like uh, trying to fix what's broken in a society and stuff. Uh, the, the fact is they're in a less of a position to do that. And you already pointed out that uh, the, the, the thing that they can do is the thing that good liberal arts schools have always done, which is to teach good, teach good critical thinking skills. I would suggest that they should, I would love to see every university in the country, no matter the size, to offer programming as part of their core curriculum that's required for the degree, that it's not just critical thinking, it's specifically centered around media literacy. So that's that. As far as that piece of it, that's that's what I would suggest 
there, but but to this other idea of thinking of themselves as publishers of news, um, there's a great book uh, called The Content Trap that starts with this anecdote of uh, uh, the 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 um, we're all familiar in this business with the quote "content is king," and I didn't know this till I didn't know this till I read the book, but um, uh, maybe you guys did, but like that was Bill Gates when they launched uh, MSN, uh, the Microsoft network. And it was, uh, you know, to, your, to what you were saying, Bart, uh, about, you know, every company is a media company. The, the, the software company, Microsoft, in the early 2000s, took that to heart. And they said, we're, we're literally going to be a media company. And they launched the Microsoft network, which failed. And now all the only real vestige of it is uh, uh, MSNBC is still with us, but it's, it's, the, an ancestor of the of the original concept, which is they wanted to compete with the New York Times, and and um, Bill Gates famously said at the news conference when they launched MSN, content is king, and the concept there was if you just make great content, people, if you build it, they will come. Is <laughs> really essentially what it was. You make great content, you're going to draw audiences, and the concept of the book, the content trap, is that's not true, actually. Okay. Yes, you do need to make good content. Absolutely. First and foremost, if your content sucks, no one wants to see it. But the premise of the book is what he calls connections. Okay. So good content and good connections, network connections, network effects to connect that content with your audiences. So back to the small schools, my experience at Ohio Dominican um, we had robust networks that we could tap into to connect with our audiences. They were founded by the Dominican sisters of uh, uh, the, the Dominican sisters of the Dominican order. Um, so, so the Catholic community in Central Ohio was a network that we could tap into, using AI, using all the tools that we have uh, to. Um, distribute content and connect it with audiences is is in having sound strategies for those smaller schools they can move mountains if they employ the right content content strategy and connection strategy to bring people together user generated content and some of the things that uh, uh, Bard V was talking about so to help us wrap up our conversation as it relates to improving media literacy or having a positive effect, are there, is there any advice that a university could quickly implement that you could give that would help in that effort? And I'll start out with Chris. Is there a quick piece of advice that could be implemented quite quickly by a listener? For the media literacy component specifically? Or, or anything that or we've talked about today? Oh, yeah. I if, if I guess my big piece of advice to schools uh, reflecting on this would be to re-examine your marketing and communications operation um, in light of these principles. Right? Any good marketing and communications office is always going to be re-examining itself and reinventing itself. Uh, all of them, and we talk to them all over the country. All of them are trying to find their way in this constantly changing um, dynamic environment, um, taking a look at how you're running those operations uh, through this lens of thinking of your 
uh, your operation as a news enterprise, as a journalistic enterprise, is 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 an interesting lens to place over it, and uh, could be a productive way to um, to reexamine the operation and and uh, make some changes for improvement. Thank you, Bart. Yeah, and from my side, I think the the one of the important things is to to cultivate the sense that that understanding what's going on. Uh, whatever, whatever the topic is, is hard work, and and we should cultivate the mentality that a Twitter thread is not a long read. Period. Thank you, Chris and Bart. We really appreciate you helping us bring this problem and some of the solutions to the forefront. It's something that once we were aware of what you're trying to do, Bart Kaler and I really wanted to make sure that we broadcasted it out. For anyone that has listened and would like to learn more from either one of you, if you would share your contact information and Bart V, if you would go first. Uh, I can best be found on LinkedIn. So Bart Verhulst, V-E-R-H-U-L-S-T, or Bart at PressPage.com. Thank you, Bart. Chris? Probably the easiest would be you can find me on Twitter. I was an early adopter, so my handle is just at Chris Davey, C-H-R-I-S-D-A-V-E-Y. Taylor, do you have any thoughts that you would like to share before we wrap it up? Yeah, I so appreciate uh, Chris and Bart being on the uh, conversation today. I think this is such a critical issue and a critical uh, conversation to have. I would really encourage everyone, do a do a Google search. I think that the article is going to be coming out. If it's not out when we publish this podcast, it's going to be out very quickly. It's titled Twin Crisis and Truth and Trust, A New Strategy for Higher Education. So I would encourage you to read that article. Um, I've read it. It's excellent. It's one of those things that uh, kind of a lot of what we've talked about is 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 along those lines. And I think that the whole idea of really trying to figure out how can you yourself become more media literate and and kind of broaden your horizons. I really like the idea of this color coding. Uh, we talked about algorithms, but rather than waiting for the algorithms, why don't we all just do that ourselves? Practice that critical thinking that we that we know and encourage those people in our network to do that as well. I think that uh, that's going to help us and actually just get out there and have conversations with somebody that might not see eye to eye with you, have a cup of coffee and, and just have a decent communication with them about that. I think that'd be a great thing to do. And then I would also just encourage us as marketers, kind of what Chris had said is take a critical look at what we're doing. How can we help in the way that we're practicing day in and day out with our own team and with our own uh, efforts that we're doing to represent our schools. So again, thanks, gentlemen. This has been a great conversation. We'd also like to extend gratitude to Rob Collin, our producer at Westport Studios, and remind everyone that the Higher Ed Marketer podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Ring Digital, the ad targeting people who are successfully increasing response and yield by precisely serving ads, directly to the handheld and household devices of your physical enrollment mailing list. On behalf of both of our Barts, Chris and myself, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who's a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? Visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time. Oh, <laughs>